Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I'm Steve Baldwin, and on today's show, we're featuring the department's Johnson & Johnson Vaccine Safety Town Hall that took place on Wednesday, April 14th. Dr. Barbara Ferrer, director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, served as moderator for the conversation, which featured our county's health officer, Dr. Muntu Davis, the Department of Public Health's chief science officer, Dr. Paul Simon, and Dr. Naman Shah, associate chief of the Department of Public Health's Healthcare Outreach Unit. As a reminder, to keep up with the latest updates and science-based recommendations, you can follow us across all social media at LA Public Health or visit our website, publichealth.lacounty.gov. And now, without further ado, here's the Department of Public Health's Johnson & Johnson Vaccine Town Hall with moderator Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Good evening and buenas noches. I'm Barbara Ferrer, Director of the L.A. County Department of Public Health, and thank you for joining me for this virtual town hall on Johnson & Johnson vaccine safety. I'm here with the County Health Officer, Dr. Muntu Davis, the Department of Public Health's Chief Science Officer, Dr. Paul Simon, and the Department of Public Health's Associate Chief of Health of the Healthcare Team, Dr. Naman Shah. We're gonna be answering questions about the COVID-19 vaccine and this week's FDA and CDC recommendation to pause on the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. To start, I wanna tell you a little bit about how tonight will go. We will start with some brief remarks from our panelists and then spend the bulk of our time together answering your questions. As a reminder, you can send in your questions on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. And if you would like to listen in Spanish, you can call 1-888-664-1453. Uh, para la gente que quieren escuchar en español, pueden llamar al, al número 1-888-664-1453. Yesterday, out of an abundance of caution, LA County Public Health announced it will follow the recommendation of the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to pause the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. This recommendation was made after reports that six women between the ages of 18 and 48 developed unusual types of blood clots six to 13 days after receiving the vaccine. These reactions to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are extremely rare as nearly 7 million people have received this vaccine in the United States. However, LA County will not be administering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine until the FDA and CDC complete their review and advise that it is safe to resume administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The CDC has indicated that their review will continue through next week. We are very grateful to the researchers and scientists working to ensure that all medications and vaccines including the COVID-19 vaccines, have, are able to adhere to the highest safety standards. Vaccine providers in LA County have been able to offer Moderna or Pfizer vaccine to 70% of the patients that were scheduled this week to receive Johnson & Johnson vaccine. 
In those cases where there weren't alternative vaccines available, providers will be calling patients to reschedule those appointments. Moving forward, again, only Pfizer and Moderna will be offered in LA County at, our, at all of the vaccination sites until the FDA and the CDC have completed their review and have recommended the continued administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We understand the confusion and the worry that this is causing, both perhaps for people who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and also for people who were scheduled to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine this week. In a few moments, Dr. Davis will discuss the medical condition that developed in the six women experiencing this adverse event and what symptoms anyone vaccinated with Johnson & Johnson this last month should watch for. Dr. Simon and Dr. Shaw will also share information on vaccine development, safety, and tracking adverse reactions. We hope that by sharing important information and answering your questions, we can all continue to feel comfortable moving forward together using all of our available tools, including the vaccines, to end this pandemic. Thank you again for joining us tonight. And now I will turn this over to Dr. Muntu Davis, Health Officer for LA County. Thank you very much, Dr. Ferrer. And uh, thank you to everyone who has joined us for this town hall. Uh, I wanna provide a little more information on what we know about the six women who were found to have a rare condition called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST. And, and this was found in combination with low platelet levels uh, or blood platelets, which is called thrombocytopenia. Uh, this condition was discovered between six and 13 days after receiving the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. CVST is a rare but clinically serious condition that occurs when clot forms in the brain's venous sinuses, which can lead to uh, a stroke uh, or could bleed in some cases. Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is treatable in most cases, but is a very serious condition and requires medical attention. If you have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the last three weeks, here are the symptoms of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or CVST to look out for. Severe headaches, abdominal or leg pain or numbness or weakness, and shortness of breath. If you develop symptoms, it's very important you contact your medical provider or seek medical care. If you don't have a medical provider, you can call 211 to be connected to uh, with a healthcare provider. I urge everyone to wait for more information on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as the federal expert panel is investigating this issue. It has not been confirmed that the six cases are associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Serious events can happen with any vaccine uh, though these are typically very rare. Until we have better understanding, we will continue to pause administering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We will still, however, encourage everyone who is eligible to be vaccinated. These are life-saving vaccines, and starting tomorrow, the eligibility for the vaccine expands to anyone who is 16 years of age and older. Thank you, and now I turn it over to Dr. Simon, Chief Science Officer at Los Angeles County Public Health. Thank you, Dr. Davis, and good evening, everyone. Um, as Dr. Davis mentioned, I'm the Chief Science Officer here at the Department of Public Health, and I would like to address those who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine at one of our vaccination sites here in LA County. 
If you have already received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you may be concerned about the reports of blood clots and the call to pause the distribution of the vaccine. Let me emphasize that if you received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine a month ago or more, it is extremely unlikely that you are at risk of developing the blood clotting condition currently under investigation. In addition, if you've received the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, there is no, also no cause for concern. I do want to note that the symptoms reported in the, in the six cases currently under investigation are different than the mild symptoms many persons experience a day or two after being vaccinated with any of the three currently authorized vaccines. These symptoms include soreness, redness, and occasionally swelling at the injection site, as well as fatigue, body ache, and sometimes fever and chills. These symptoms are a well-recognized and common reaction to the vaccines and are not a cause for alarm. Overall, the condition under investigation is very rare, <clears throat> excuse me, with only six cases having been reported to date among approximately 7, 000, I'm sorry, 7 million persons who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine across the country. At this early point in the investigation, we are not yet able to say if there are contributing factors or related health conditions that increase the risk for this condition. The distribution of the vaccine has been paused to allow for the investigation and to alert healthcare providers to the condition and the appropriate medical management if it should occur. At this time, there is no reason to believe persons with any type of health condition are at higher risk to develop this reaction if they have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. As we learn more over the next few days from the expert panel at the federal level, we will continue to share information and what this means for LA County. I'd now like to introduce Dr. Naman Shah, Associate Chief of the Healthcare Outreach Unit at LA County Public Health. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Simon, Dr. Davis, Dr. Frere. Good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Naman Shah. I'm the Associate Chief of the Healthcare Outreach Unit here at Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. I'm also one of the vaccine operational leads. Tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about vaccine development and the clinical trial process to help everyone watching understand the safety process a little bit better. Bringing a new vaccine to the public involves many steps. This includes vaccine development, clinical trials, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, also known as the FDA, authorization, then manufacturing, and then distribution. Three authorized COVID-19 vaccines have been and continue to be rigorously tested during the development process. This has included tens of thousands of study participants to generate the needed clinical and manufacturing data. Many public organizations and private companies have worked together in partnership to make the vaccines available to the public. While the vaccines have been developed rapidly, appropriate to the emergency we are in, all steps have been taken to ensure their safety and effectiveness. There were no skipped steps. What are these steps? First, new vaccines are developed in laboratories where they're studied. The virus that causes COVID-19 is related to other coronaviruses, which have been around for a much longer time. This includes the original SARS, as well as the MERS viruses. So we've been studying these for 17 years, long before SARS-CoV-2 was identified. What we learned from these other viruses helped us accelerate the initial development of our COVID-19 vaccine. After their initial development, vaccine goes, they go through three phases of clinical trials to make sure they're safe and effective. This three-step process includes phase one, where small groups of people receive the trial vaccine for immediate safety concerns. In phase two, a larger group of people receive the vaccine, and we really look at the immune response, 
effects of different dosages. And in phase three, which are the large studies, randomized trials with the placebo, thousands and thousands of individuals are tested for the vaccine's efficacy and safety. After phase three, when the vaccine is approved, there's still post-marketing surveillance. So when it's in general use, we're looking at it closely. This is also sometimes known as phase four. The trials for the COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. have involved tens of thousands of volunteers, different ages, different races, different ethnicities, and different comorbidities. The trials compare outcomes, how many people get sick, between people who receive the vaccine and people who did not receive the vaccine. The results from the trials have unequivocally shown that the vaccines are incredibly effective. They are amazing tools in our fight against COVID-19. They have also shown no serious safety concerns after more than eight weeks following vaccination. Eight weeks is a really important milestone because it's unusual for adverse events caused by vaccines to appear after this amount of time. And we know that from many other vaccines. Before vaccines are made available to everyone in real world settings, the FDA assesses findings from the clinical trials. What is the FDA? It's a government agency full of career scientists and physicians who have globally recognized expertise in the complexity of vaccine development and evaluating their safety and effectiveness data uh, for preventing infectious diseases. These professionals are committed to decision-making based on scientifically determined data. So far, the three COVID-19 vaccines have met their safety and effectiveness standards and they were granted emergency use authorization, which are specifically for public health emergencies like our current pandemic. This allowed the vaccines to be quickly distributed while maintaining the same high safety standards required for all vaccines. For an EUA to be issued, for which there's adequate manufacturing information and adequate clinical trial information, the FDA weighs the known and potential benefits against the known and potential risks. No risks were identified for these vaccines in the trials. Because COVID-19 continues to be a public health crisis, the EUA, the difference between that and normal approval, is the eight weeks of follow-up safety data which would be longer if the disease were less common and less widespread. Again, the vast majority of vaccine adverse events, which we know from other vaccines, occur within the first six weeks. As vaccines are distributed outside of clinical trials, several new monitoring systems are in place to track and ensure their safety. At this point, over 100 million people have received the COVID-19 vaccine in the U.S., and results from uh, the ongoing safety monitoring are reassuring. Some people have no side effects. Many people, as Dr. Simon mentioned, have mild side effects after vaccination, like pain at the injection site, a headache, chills, or fever. These are normal, they are common, and they're signs of your immune system working. A small number of people have had a severe allergic reaction, also known as anaphylaxis, after vaccination. This is extremely rare, one in two to four million. If it occurs, all vaccination providers have medications on hand to treat this reaction effectively and immediately. No unexpected patterns of reactions or other safety concerns have been identified during early vaccine monitoring. The other monitoring systems include vSafe, which is a new text-based system that everyone can opt into after receiving their vaccine, and our national vaccine monitoring system known as VAERS, where any individual, any patient, any healthcare provider can report a possible finding. In summary, the COVID-19 vaccines have been, have been developed and distributed to help by the pandemic. And during this process, all steps have been taken to ensure their safety and effectiveness. 
thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shaw and Dr. Simon and Dr. Davis. Um, I want to get to uh, questions, and I'll I'll try to direct my questions to one person, but feel free if if other folks have um, comments that they like to make or add additional information. You know, just go ahead and jump in. I want to thank everybody. Um, as of uh, before, we even got started today. Uh, there were over 300 questions that were submitted. So we're going to try to get to as many of your questions as possible. And we're trying to group them because some of the questions are, are similar uh, in nature. Uh, but let's get started. And, uh, and again, thank you uh, to everybody, all of our listeners and viewers uh, for joining us and for sending in a really great and important questions. Uh, Dr. Davis, I, I wanted to just start with you. Um, uh, a question that came up frequently, actually, from, from our audience is, what is the treatment for CVST associated with what is low, pl low platelets, uh, thrombocytopenia, and the J&J &J vaccine? And are local emergency rooms and physicians prepared to treat this condition? If the symptoms do occur, should I call 911? That's a, a great question. And, uh, you know, it really depends on, in terms of whether or not you call 911, really depends on what symptoms you are feeling. Uh, you know, some symptoms may be very severe uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, what you're noticing and may be very concerning. If you have any worries, you know, always call 911 uh, if you have anything that is particularly severe or concerning. Uh, as we look at this, uh, it definitely is something that is treatable. Uh, it is something that uh, must be recognized by the provider because the treatment of this is a little bit different than the treatment of your typical uh, thrombotic or clots, uh, you know, clotting events. And so that's why it's important uh, that there is a pause here so that providers are aware, although this is a rare uh, effect that is seen uh, and they're assessing this, uh, providers need to, to be able to recognize it in order to treat it. Uh, so, uh, really, uh, there's a span of, of different symptoms, as I mentioned. Uh, depending on how you feel, you may call 911 uh, or you may just call your provider, but it really is dependent on the symptoms you have at that time. Do you want to comment just quickly on, on how providers are, are prepared to both screen for these symptoms and then care for patients? Yes. So um, as uh, providers, uh, when, you know, when you go in and, and you have symptoms, they're often going to assess, you know, what's happened in your most recent past. Uh, so if you have symptoms, you know, it's important for you to note to the provider, uh, you know, here's what happened. Here's the vaccine I got or here's the medication I took or here's what happened to me the other day. Uh, that helps them sort of determine what might be the differential or the co different causes, things that could cause the symptoms that you have. Uh, and providers can do assessments in terms of uh, scans or uh, physical exams or any other blood tests in order to assess what might be going on with you. Uh, but the history is also very important to give them an idea of what they might be looking for uh, that might be causing your symptoms. Thanks so much. And, and Dr. Shaw, a, a really a, a good follow-up question that came in was from a person who noted that she just got her J&J &J vaccine on Friday and she's had dizziness for the past two days. Should she be concerned? Uh, Dr. Shaw, we can't hear you again. Hello, can you hear me? Now we can, yes. Sorry. 
I can imagine how um, this recent news must be worrying to individuals uh, like your caller who received the vaccine uh, just a few days ago. First, it's still important to note that reports of these unusual clots are quite rare. Many people after the vaccine will still have mild symptoms after vaccination, including body aches, headaches, chills, and fevers, and these are normal and they're a sign of your immune system working. The risk of clots really appears to be about four days after vaccination to up to three weeks after receiving the vaccine. If your symptoms are worsening, severe, or lasting longer, uh, as Dr. Davis said, please seek an evaluation with your doctor. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Shaw. Uh, Dr. Simon, uh, I think there's a, a question here uh, for you as well. What is the window for having a reaction of a blood clot? Uh, and then is it really just for one or two weeks after the vaccine, or should we be worried if we got the vaccine three or four weeks ago? And is this a permanent risk, something we have to worry about for uh, for for the rest of our time, or is this just something that we need to worry about for a short period of time. So in the six cases that are currently being investigated, the, the range in the onset of symptoms was six days to 13 days. So as Dr. Shaw said, it's, it's, if this very rare adverse reaction is to occur, it likely would occur within the, the first several weeks after having been vaccinated. And therefore, if you're out, say a month or longer from having been vaccinated, then at this point, there's no evidence that there would be any risk whatsoever. So I just wanna reassure people about that. In addition, this seems to be a very specific sort of idiosyncratic reaction to the vaccine, if it indeed is causally related. Um, and, uh, there, and it's interesting, there's another vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a similar vaccine. It's a viral vector vaccine uh, with a particular virus, the adenovirus, and that has caused a similar sort of reaction that's being investigated uh, in, in Europe. So it's possible that the, the two are related. But the important point here is that this is very different than the standard sort of risks for blood clots. And there are many uh, risks for blood clots. It's not common, but certainly much more common than this very unusual reaction uh, potentially to, to the vaccine. So for someone, uh, again, in the rare event that would have a reaction like this, there's no um, sense that this would be an ongoing general clotting problem, but certainly uh, one would be have, have to be very careful uh, in terms of future vaccination. And you'd want to have very close, I think, communication with your healthcare provider to determine what's appropriate in terms of future vaccination. Oh, thank you. And 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 Dr. Davis, there's there's again, uh, I think, a, a question that's related and of interest to to many of the folks listening in today. Um, this is: Should I be doing anything to prevent blood clots? To prevent this from happening, if I receive the J and J vaccine, like, should I be taking baby aspirin? Yeah, I, this is a great question as well. I, I think, um, you know, as we, we talk about this, this is this is really very rare, um, you know, so not likely just in terms of thinking about this. We're talking about um, about 7 million doses in six cases. So that's less than one in a million. Uh, however, just in terms of thinking about clots, there's nothing I think you have to do in particular after the J&J &J vaccine. Uh, but in terms of preventing clots, you know, the heart healthy lifestyle, 
of eating low-fat diet, exercising daily, you know, all of those things that your primary care provider says that we all should do to stay healthy are the things that you would do to prevent clots in general. Uh, but there's no indication that there's anything special to do uh, at the moment uh, after you've received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yeah, Dr. Shaw, I, I wonder, you know, again, we have so many questions uh, related to to people's concerns who have been vaccinated. And I, I wanna thank everybody for, for really having the courage to raise these issues. I'm gonna spend some time on these questions uh, because I think they're really important uh, questions and people really are looking for answers. Dr. Shaw, you know, similar concern. This is uh, from a person who noted that uh, they're genetically predisposed to blood clotting and they're on a blood thinner. Uh, and they got, they recently received their J&J &J vaccine. Do they have increased risk uh, for actually developing clots? These serious clots that were identified as, as a really an adverse event. Uh, Dr. Shai, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. No, it's a, it's a great question. Um, we, we're still we're still assessing uh, the evidence. We're trying to gather more cases. We're trying to learn more. I think that's why the CDC and the FDA want to review data out of an abundance of caution. Uh, again, individuals who have a prior history of blood clots or are prone to making blood clots, those tend to be of a certain type. These are a very rare, unusual type of blood clots. Uh, we do not think uh, from the European data of a related vaccine that there is any additional risk for people who have a history of clots. It seems to be really random and rare. So if you've had a prior history of blood clots, please discuss with your doctor about which vaccine is best for you. Um, and I hope, uh, I know many people are eager uh, to receive their single shot dose of J&J, &J, and I hope we'll be able to clear the air and be better prepared to resume vaccination soon. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm gonna just continue to try to answer as many of the questions that, that came about people's concerns because they were vaccinated already. Um, so here's, here's a question um, that maybe Dr. Simon, uh, you could help us with. Uh, this, is, this is a question that, uh, of, a caller called in that said, should women who received the J&J &J vaccine in this last week stop taking their hormonal birth control pills to reduce the chance of blood clots? And, and really uh, anybody can, can answer that. I mean, I'll start with Dr. Simon, but happy to have anybody weigh in on that. So that's a great question. <clears throat> I probably would, talk to your healthcare provider uh, because I think um, one factor is the reason you're on those uh, birth control pills. Um, and um, I would say that there's no evidence that this process that leads to this rare adverse reaction <clears throat> is similar in any way to the risks that might be associated with using birth control pills. So I would say probably on a theoretical level, the, it would probably be safe to continue uh, those birth control pills, but I think probably it would make sense to talk to your healthcare provider. I actually would welcome uh, Dr. Davis's or Dr. Shaw's opinion on this, so I think it's an interesting question. Dr. Shaw or Dr. Davis, do either of you wanna also weigh in? I wanna echo what Dr. Simon is saying. There's, there's no evidence that 
you know, any other risk factors for traditional clots puts you at increased risk of this type of clot. I, I wouldn't make any drastic changes to your life. I would certainly talk with your doctor first. Uh, and I just want to note that there's many reasons women take birth control pills. If it's been working for you, pregnancy alone has many risks. And so there's a, you know, there's, and that has to be weighed uh, in this as well. At this time, really be reassured and just wait for more information, talk to your doctor and do what's right for you. Yeah, I mean, maybe Dr. Shaw, I mean, sort of a, a, a question very related to that is, of the six women uh, that currently we have information on in terms of the adverse events, do we know if uh, among these women they were they were all or were some of them taking birth control? The question a lot of people have asked, and there was only one case out of the six where the CDC reported that an individual was on hormonal contraception containing both estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, I think I think uh, right. I mean, again, you know, they're they're still doing their review at CDC, so uh, you know, we're we have some initial information about these six cases, and and thank you for sharing that with us. I'm, I'm going to do. I think there's one more question, uh, two more questions that are very related to this, and and then we'll move on because there's a whole another set of questions just related to vaccine safety in general. Uh, one question that that got asked, and and maybe um, uh, Dr. Dr. Davis, you could help with this, is does cerebral venous sinus thrombosis develop slowly over a few days or hours, or is it very sudden? You know, I think this is uh, one of those things that we're we're trying to figure out. Uh, and so, as they look at the data and try to assess. Uh, I think it might be difficult to know uh, in these cases whether or not there was something already there and, uh, you know, uh, this is sort of built up over time. Uh, but this is what, um, you know, assessing the data, looking at uh, all people who have received uh, Johnson & Johnson and trying to figure out and discern, you know, whether or not this is something that developed because of the vaccine or if this is something that is just sort of the background uh, in terms of the cases that would have shown up with CVST anyway. Um, so it's difficult to know at this point. Um, more data needs to be assessed. Uh, I was listening to uh, the uh, immunization pa uh, advisory panel uh, this morning or this afternoon talking about it, and they're really looking at additional data beyond these six these six cases to see if there's any other cases that might show up to provide some additional information. So they really are taking a scientific approach as they look at this information. Yeah, thanks for that. And. Uh, and Dr. Shah, uh, this is a, a little bit of a long question, but um, I, I want to get at it because I, I think, again, there might be a group of people very concerned that have similar case histories. Uh, this is from a 40-year-old woman, and thank you for sending this question in, with autoimmune diseases, lupus, among them lupus, and a history of anaphylaxis, and she's allergic to peanuts. Uh, her doctor advised her that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be the best uh, vaccine for her, and she received it at the end of March. What specifically should she be worried about? And is there, again, a connection with these rare blood clots that you're seeing and that were noticed in these six women and people with autoimmune diseases? It's a great question. Uh, first, I can't imagine what a challenge it must be managing all of the serious medical conditions. 
uh, and it's uh, wonderful that you got vaccinated. For people who have comorbidities, you're at increased risk of severe COVID-19, which, by the way, has a hundredfold increased risk of a blood clot compared to the rare risk uh, that we think may be associated with Johnson & Johnson. Um, now, the signs to look out for are, are persistent severe headaches after vaccination, pain in the belly or the legs, shortness of breath. If it's been more than three weeks, it is incredibly unlikely uh, that anybody would be at risk. It is great to be vigilant about your health, but remember that these are very rare events. So I would like to thank the caller for a great job in protecting themselves from COVID-19 with the vaccine and, um, and taking care of their health. That's great. Thanks a lot, Dr. Shaw. Uh, Dr. Simon, uh, I think this is, this is a, a, a good opportunity to, to really talk about the unintended consequence of us having to pause uh, administration of one of our vaccines. Uh, what is the plan to restore global confidence in the vaccinations for COVID-19? A really important question. I think this process hopefully will provide some reassurance, the understanding that safety is of utmost importance. Uh, there actually was some debate about whether the vaccination efforts with the J&J vaccine should be paused or not, uh, given that these were such rare, you know, events. But I think uh, the judgment was made that, that, again, safety is paramount. And in addition, it's a very transparent process. Um, all of us in public health uh, have had full access to, to the information as it's being uh, disclosed. And in addition, I think the press has been doing a, a great job of covering it as well. So I think most importantly, we want to get the answers, uh, determine whether these events are indeed uh, related to the vaccine. If so, are there particular factors that place certain people at greater risk than other people? So that if we resume use of the J&J &J vaccine, there may be certain groups of people with, with particular risks that might be directed to the other vaccines, or it, it, it may be that uh, these, uh, again, are uh, causally related, but so rare that we resume vaccination, but now with uh, an understanding that this is a, a rare, uh, very low risk, but nonetheless a risk, and the providers, the vaccine providers uh, need to be aware. Uh, healthcare providers need to be um, clear about what to look for and what the, the treatment would be if someone in, in a rare case did develop this um, adverse effect. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Davis, maybe you could help. There's, there's a couple of questions here uh, noting that these vaccines that we're using right now are, are all under what's called emergency use authorization. And we have a couple of questions. How close are we to the FDA approving uh, any of the COVID-19 vaccines? And can we expect that sort of final approval uh, by the end of this year, or will it happen sooner? That's a great question. And it's, it's one we've also been asking here as local health departments. And, and I would invite Dr. Simon or Dr. Shaw to, to add to this. Um, but I think, you know, as more and more data is uh, collected, as they continue to assess how long protection lasts, et cetera, 
uh, and continue to assess any, you know, adverse uh, effects that may come from this. Um, you know, it, it data will be, uh, you know, uh, submitted to the FDA uh, for licensing. Um, I don't have any additional information to know a plan timeline. Uh, I would hope that it would be before the end of this year, uh, you know, so that, uh, you know, it, it, it does, you know, pass that one licensing test uh, in terms of its use. Uh, but uh, Dr. Simon or Dr. Shaw, do you have any additional information related to, you know, the application for licensing? I, I I also don't know the the timeline, but I would add that I think Moderna recently announced uh, their six their results after six months of follow up, and they were very very positive. I think ninety five percent efficacy uh, overall, or maybe ninety percent efficacy overall, and ninety five percent efficacy for severe disease. Again, this is after six months, so um, that's reassuring. But I, I don't know what the the uh, requirement would be by the FDA in terms of the duration of the of the trial. I don't know, Dr. Shaw, if you have any insights on that. No, thank you, Dr. Davis. Dr. Simon, just to add on, in addition to Moderna, both Pfizer and Moderna recently completed six months of full safety data among people who are in the trial, along with efficacy data. As you said, the reanalysis with the full six months of data showed a very similar efficacy and safety profile as when those vaccines were originally approved, and that's wonderful news. Now with six months of participant data behind them, uh, I think within the next six months, we'll see a submission to the FDA for full approval. Oh, thank you, Dr. Shaw. And maybe, you know, I, I can get you to, to uh, really dig in a little deeper on the issues of efficacy and uh, especially. Um, uh, there is a question of, uh, I've, I received the J&J &J vaccine, but I hear now that it's only 60% effective when compared to Pfizer and Moderna, where I'm hearing that they're 95% effective, and it leaves me feeling exposed with inferior protection. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I want to note that a lot of public health leaders, uh, including uh, our own uh, governor of the state, received the J&J &J vaccine. And I think these individuals, they're, they're smart people, and they chose the J&J vaccine, I think, understanding the full efficacy. It is absolutely confusing when all these different numbers are thrown around. So let's take a step back. We, when we hear the vaccines compared against each other, it can be misleading for several reasons. First, the trials are conducted different ways. They were conducted in different places, and they were conducted at different times. Uh, at different times, we had different variants, and different rates of community transmission. This affects the trial results, so it's really hard to compare them against each other. It is true that J&J protected against 66% of mild cases of COVID-19 after two weeks of vaccination. With four weeks time after vaccination, the results are a lot stronger, and most importantly, against what people really care about, which is, if I get COVID-19, am I gonna get hospitalized or am I gonna die? This did not happen in the trial setting. Uh, with J&J. &J. It was 100% efficacious against hospitalization and death, although there were relatively few hospitalizations and deaths, but all of them were in individuals who received the placebo. So the summary is we have three wonderfully effective vaccines that will stop you from being hospitalized and stop you from dying. And, and so maybe we can just directly answer, you know, the second part of that question is, you know what, since I'm not so sure about the efficacy of Johnson & Johnson, should I just go ahead and get the Pfizer vaccine as well? 
So if you receive the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you are considered fully protected. You should not receive uh, the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. This has not been studied of what happens if individuals uh, receive both of these vaccines fully uh, together. There are some cases where if an individual had an allergy to the first dose of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, and that's a serious allergy, uh, then they can complete their protection with a single shot of the Johnson & Johnson. But it wouldn't be a good idea for people who got Johnson & Johnson to go no. and try to get a different vaccine right now. Great, great point. Do not try to go get a different vaccine. Uh, there are lots and lots of people out there who still need a vaccine, and we have no data that that's going to help you. You are considered fully protected, again, again especially against hospitalization and death after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine after two weeks. Oh, great. Thanks a lot. Um, you know, Dr. Simon, I, I'm wondering um, if you could you could help with a, a question that got asked around: Are vaccine suspensions rare? Oh, excuse me, I thought I was muted. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, no, they're not rare because generally they're very well studied uh, in advance of them being approved, um, but. There are instances where they have been suspended. And again, I think it's it's a testimony to the rigor of, of our system of, of evaluation. I, and here again, I think Dr. Shaw probably uh, is much more expert on this than, than me, but, but I remember um, the rotavirus or what, an early version of the rotavirus vaccine um, that led to a rare complication called intussusception. Uh, sort of a, a problem with the, the intestines in, a, in an infant or young child, and that caused a pause. And I don't remember what the outcome was, whether they completely then uh, discontinued that vaccine and worked on a new one, or whether they were able to determine it was okay to resume uh, vaccinations. But that's just sort of one example. It does not happen often, but if the data indicate there's uh, a justification for doing so, we don't hesitate to do that. Yeah, thanks. Um, and, and maybe, uh, Dr. Davis, um, there, there's a, a question uh, also, you know, uh, a little bit similar uh, to the question about, you know, vaccine suspensions, uh, which is really uh, related about to, um, to really trying to understand uh, why the FDA would approve these vaccines on such an accelerated timeline. So this uh, goes to, you know, thinking about the situation we were in. Um, it's not often that we're in an emergency. It's not often that we have uh, an infectious disease that causes so much illness that we saw, as well as hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, and we are actually still within an emergency. Uh, and so these vaccines were approved. Uh, for the purpose of looking at, you know, how much illness, uh, hospitalization, and death they cause, uh, and uh, their effectiveness at preventing that. And so that's why they were authorized. Uh, they did, as mentioned, go through the same steps that vaccines would go through in terms of looking at safety, looking at their effectiveness, and were approved in order to prevent hospitalization and death. Uh, and because we were in an emergency, that's when they're used. It's not the first time that an emergency use authorization has been uh, put into play. 
but uh, that is the reason for that. It was during an emergency, looking at the consequences of the situation that we were in, how much illness, how much hospitalization and death that we saw from the infections uh, and their effectiveness at preventing those severe outcomes. Dr. Shaw, uh, again, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate these questions. They're so thoughtful and, and really they're, they're important that we, we try to answer. Uh, there's a question again, you know, uh, people, a lot of questions about like, what are the differences between these vaccines? And there's a question uh, from, from one of the callers, are the antibodies created in a person from a J and J vaccine, the same as the antibodies that are created in a person from a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and the science of this is really interesting. So, all of the COVID vaccines which have been approved, uh, all three of them work in the same way. Uh, they're delivered in they have a little, they have differences in how they're delivered and the genetic material they use, but they all train our body to fight against the same viral protein. That protein is called spike protein, and it's the protein that allows viruses, to, uh, the coronavirus, to enter our cells. So all three of the vaccines, they make the spike protein in your body so your immune system recognizes it and learns how to fight it. Uh, and so the antibodies that are produced against the spike protein, uh, because it's the same protein, are the same. That's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. I, we, we have a lot of questions that are that were very similar to that, you know, sort of what is, what is actually happening in my body? Um, and, and maybe, uh, Dr. Simon, this might be a good time to answer the questions we got about how long is this vaccine going to be good for? Is it really just good for six months? Um, you know, is it, do, am I going to need a booster? So there was a whole set of questions there that perhaps you can, you can start weighing in on. Sure, that's uh, a very important question. I think we're all interested in the answer, and, and uh, I have to say only time will tell. Um, we, we know now at least that uh, the vaccine seemed to be good for at least six months, we hope longer, uh, but we do know that uh, this virus does evolve over time, maybe not as rapidly as some other viruses, but nonetheless it does. And so that may uh, necessitate that over time we modify the vaccines to address these evolving variants. and that in turn would, would lead to the need to, to provide boosters on a regular basis. Uh, I hesitate to predict though, how often uh, that would meet, need to be. I know I've heard some this, you know, speculate that it might be similar to what we uh, deal with, with regard to influenza with annual boosters required, but I, I even hesitate to make that comparison because they're two different viruses. And I think, uh, Certainly throughout this pandemic, uh, we've learned as we've proceeded. And I think this is just another example of where we're gonna just have to follow the data and make decisions based on that. Thanks so much. Um, Dr. Davis, uh, we also have a, a set of questions from folks who uh, really at this point, they, they would like to still get the J&J &J vaccine. Um, they're, they're pretty clear that for them, that was the best choice. And they're wondering uh, how, how can they make sure that that is gonna still be available for them? They don't think they're at risk. I think these are probably both questions that came from men and they're probably noting that the risk that was identified was identified only for women. 
Um, and they're wondering why a different approach wasn't taken to just allow J and J vaccine uh, to still be administered, you know, noting what the caution was and letting people uh, make up their own minds. Yeah, I think the the, the question uh, points out um, or help, helps to highlight that there are two things that are happening with this pause. Uh, the first is looking to see uh, are these the these cases? Is there anything that we learn from these cases that says this vac this vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson COVID vaccine, should be uh, more for certain groups of people? That's one reason. The second reason is really probably one of the even the more more important reason is making sure that providers are aware and they know what to look out for again because the treatment of this is different from your typical clot treatments, uh, and so. Uh, there, this pause may be short. Um, it may take some time. Uh, that's hard to say. But really, there were two reasons. Uh, one, to make sure that, uh, you know, to know, is there any risk for any particular group? And the second is to make sure that providers are aware and know what to look out for. Uh, because again, the treatment of this condition is different should it show, show up from other, uh, you know, treatments for clots. Uh, so it may come out to be that, um, that there's nothing else to worry about and that providers know what to look for. But it remains to be seen that that could be an outcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, before we go on to sort of questions about, you know, is is having this pause going to slow us down on trying uh, to reach our goals of getting lots and lots of people vaccinated quickly and the reopenings that are, you know, for everything uh, by June fifteenth? Um, I thought maybe Dr. Shai could just. Um, ask you again, you know, these are, these are, I think, really uh, insightful questions. Um, and, and, you know, I think people have a hard time getting answers to them. Uh, but what is the technology behind making the J&J &J vaccine? And how is that technology different from the technology that was used to make the Pfizer vaccine and the uh, Moderna vaccine? I love the scientific questions and we're happy to answer them. So uh, the J&J vaccine is what we call a viral vector vaccine. It uses a human uh, virus. It's called adenovirus 26. And this is a uh, virus that causes sort of a common cold. This virus has been changed so that it cannot modify, uh, it cannot replicate in our bodies. Uh, so it's injected, it produces a protein. This protein, it produces all of its own protein uh, without the ability to spread. Along with its own protein, we've inserted DNA for the spike protein from coronavirus. And by producing the spike protein along with its own protein, that gives our immune system a chance to get exposed to it, to learn, to recognize it, and to be ready to fight it when it sees it the next time. Compared to Pfizer and Moderna, these are called mRNA vaccines. So they are mRNA, which DNA becomes mRNA, mRNA then becomes a protein. So it's a similar, it's a similar process, and that mRNA enters our cells by uh, little fat droplets. They're droplets of lipids. They're essentially little fat bubbles. They allow the mRNA to enter our cells, where the mRNA becomes a protein, the same spike protein, our cells display it to the immune system, and the immune system learns to recognize and fight it. So the main differences are it's DNA instead of mRNA, and instead of using a lipid nanoparticle, uh, a fat droplet to enter our cells, it uses a harmless common cold virus to enter our cells. 
Um, so the, the follow-up question to that was like, I hear you talking a lot about DNA and that means that these vaccines are, must be altering our genes. Can you explain that? It's a great question. So for the mRNA vaccines, they never come near your DNA. They're just, they're outside of the nucleus, which is the part of the cell that holds your DNA. For the adenoviral vector vaccines, the DNA enters your cell, it is translated into mRNA and the protein, but it does not alter our DNA in any way. It does not insert itself into your DNA, it does not modify your DNA, it produces no changes. I, I wanna note that even though this is the first uh, adenoviral vector vaccine approved in the US, it's been used for many other diseases, including HIV, rotavirus, et cetera, and clinical trials involving more than 200,000 people and one approved vaccine internationally, which is the Ebola vaccine, which has been approved in the last few years and has been tremendous in helping us contain the Ebola outbreak in Central and Western Africa. Oh, thanks so much for that. Um, you know, maybe, um, you know, Dr. Simon, I could move on to you with, with a couple, uh, you know, we could start a couple of questions about reactions. This is in general about vaccines. So moving away from just talking more about Johnson & Johnson and talking now about what causes the side effects when getting a vaccine? Why do I feel sick if the vaccine is supposed to make me not get sick? Sure, so in most cases, it's because the vaccine is actually stimulating your immune system. So it's, it's, a, good, it's a good sign. Uh, but I do wanna point out, because I've been asked this a number of times, if I don't have those side effects, does that mean my immune system is not reacting? I'm not getting the protective effect and that is not the case. So while having that reaction reflects the fact that your immune system is responding, the lack of those symptoms doesn't mean that your immune system is not responding. And that was very clear in the, in the clinical trials uh, where uh, while these common side effects occurred in 50 plus percent of those in the trial, there were a number of people in the clinical trial, in the vaccine trials that didn't have any of those reactions, but nonetheless had a good antibody response. So again, I just in summary, I think it's, it's, it's the immune system, generally speaking, responding. Maybe Dr. Simon, uh, there's a couple of questions about which vaccine is safest that has the least side effects? Of the three vaccines, is there one I should take because I, it's gonna, I have the least chance of having any side effects to it? This is a question I got from my own family members, I have to, I have to admit. Uh, convinced that one vaccine was better than, than another, just primarily based on anecdotal reports. We learn an awful lot, you know, through our, our social networks, our friends and family members. But at the end of the day, I think uh, one should not delay getting uh, one particular brand of vaccine versus another. They, they all work really well. And in the, in the vaccine trials, they all seem to have pretty similar, uh, you know, local reactions with relatively speaking the same frequencies. I will say just on a personal note, again, I have uh, one family member who received um, the J&J &J vaccine, another who received the Moderna vaccine, and another who received the Pfizer vaccine. And I had no reservations whatsoever uh, with the, each of those. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, 
you know, Dr. Davis, um, I wonder if you could help um, answer some questions that, that came in that really are about um, how are we gonna work as together as a, as a community to get everyone vaccinated. Uh, one question that, that was asked a lot here was um, how long is it gonna take for us to get to herd immunity with these vaccines here in LA County? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the, the more that we have people vaccinated, uh, the more we're likely we're to see less cases. Uh, and, you know, the questions that are really unknown at the moment are, uh, you know, what are, what's going to happen? Are we going to have more variants? And will a variant at some point, uh, you know, cause, um, you know, more infection, uh, you know, in relationship to these? Uh, so far, what we're seeing is that the more people that we see vaccinated, <clears throat> the less likely that we're seeing cases, uh, the lower our case counts are, are you know, showing up. Uh, and I will say that as more infections start to happen, that's more of a chance for variants uh, that may be concerning to, to occur. Uh, so, you know, as we continue on this path to, to have more and more people vaccinated, we're less likely to see variants. We're less likely to see hospitalizations. We're less likely to see deaths related to COVID-19. Yeah, I don't know, Dr. Shaw, if you want to chime in, because I know you've done some predicting about what will it take for us to get to the place and how long will it take for us to get to a place where 80% of LA County residents are fully vaccinated? Yeah, for 80%, based on the number of doses that are coming into LA County right now, if everyone who is eligible for a vaccine, and, and we want to get to 100%, but if, if we want to, at 80%, we'll, be, we'll reach that in June. And I think by the end of summer, we can vaccinate everyone who is eligible to receive a vaccine in LA County. And that is, that is our goal, that is our hope, and that is our, our plea to you. How many vaccines do you think we need to, uh, how many doses do we need to get here in LA County every week on average for us to be able to get to uh, the end of June and have it have 80% of people who are residents here fully vaccinated? We need each week, we need to get 555,000 doses every week, week after week to be able to complete 80% of our adults by the end of June. Uh, we based on the number of doses coming into the county from all sources, from the state, from the doses that we are managing here at Department of Public Health and from the federal government, uh, we are already getting over 600,000 doses a week into the county, even with the pause on J&J, although we hope it'll be resumed shortly so that we can use, uh, you know, what is a wonderful tool against the deadly disease. Yeah, and, and, and maybe uh, maybe that, that would be great. Um, if, if Dr. Simon, you could just comment a little bit on, you know, do we think that not having J&J &J is going to really impact our ability to, to uh, reopen fully, as the governor says, on June 15th? So obviously, we're very excited about the J&J &J vaccine, given that it's one, one dose, one and done. Um, but uh, fortunately, uh, I think it, it seems we have a very robust supply of both Pfizer and Moderna across the country. And at least initially, it, it appears that we'll be able to compensate and increase uh, delivery for uh, with uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Of course, 
I want to be cautious, I think, in, in making any predictions. It, again, you know, ultimately depends on what's av available at the federal level and, and what gets allocated out down to the states and then down to us. But I'm generally pretty optimistic um, that we can uh, reach that uh, sort of adhere to that timeline that, that Dr. Shaw described. As long as we continue to have good support within the community, the many communities uh, in Los Angeles County, we, we've, I wanna just thank all of those out there across the county. I think uh, it's not so easy, particularly early on when it was not so easy to get vaccinated. Uh, you had to battle with some, uh, you know, um, appointment systems, that, registration systems that were challenging and continue to be challenging in many cases. But we have now gotten over 70% of our 65 plus population vaccinated with at least one dose. And I believe a little over 40% of those 16 and older uh, vaccinated. And we may talk about this later, but we have to make sure that we are uh, providing the vaccine across the entire county that uh, we uh, reduce and uh, eliminate the, the gaps we see across the county in, in vaccination rates. Yeah, thank you. And, and maybe, maybe uh, Dr. Davis, you could talk a little bit about how are we making sure that those people in hard hit communities, those people who uh, may uh, not have, um, you know, uh, may, may be immigrants, those people who don't speak English, how are we helping those people uh, get vaccinated here? Like what, what are we doing to make it easy for people who feel like, uh, you know, this, this may not be something that's for them? Well, there, there are a couple of, of things that we're doing. So one, um, you know, we always try to work with the principal, meet people where they are. Uh, and that uh, includes thinking about <clears throat> answering questions that they may have. Uh, sometimes we're answering questions that we've answered in other forums. Uh, and sometimes we're doing this through social media. Sometimes we're doing this uh, through working with community partners who already uh, are working with and providing services to those communities. Uh, and you know, doing it uh, in a way that uh, meets their needs. Uh, so sometimes we're doing this through virtual town halls like this. Sometimes we have staff that are on the ground and actually walking the streets and asking people, you know, if they have questions about the vaccines or if they've been vaccinated and trying to answer their questions in that way. Sometimes we have uh, things that we call closed dispensing sites, uh, where we have. A, maybe a mobile provider who goes to a location that is very familiar to a population uh, and providing vaccines uh, at that, at, uh, on certain days at those locations. Uh, as much as possible, we try to work with those community-based organizations that know the population, that speak the languages, to make sure that information is ready available to them. Uh, and we've continued to do that throughout this time, uh, and we'll continue to do that more and more as we continue to move forward. Oh, thanks so much for that. Um, and I, a couple of more questions uh, came back in about um, some some concerns again with the approval process for these vaccines. So, you know, I think it might be helpful to to again go back and try to answer a couple of of, a, of slightly different questions that got asked. One is why would uh, how could you possibly approve vaccines and then have serious potential side effects um, that are so dangerous that it would cause you to stop allowing those vaccines to be administered. So maybe Dr. Shaw, you could start with that. 
It's a great question, and it comes down to a number of games. So all vaccines, we try to make sure that they're going to be safe, all medicines and all vaccines, they're, they're going to be safe in a large number of people. And so our phase three trials, they involve tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. But even when you study something really closely in 100,000 people, if something happens one in a million, you won't be able to find out until it's used in the general public. That's why it's so important to have phase four studies these post-approval studies and really good monitoring systems. I know a pause is worrisome for a lot of people, but I think the other way to look at it is it means the system is working, that monitoring is being done really closely, that even a, a potential concern in a very low number of people was detected, and then steps were taken to improve our actions. As Dr. Davis and Dr. Simon have said, uh, this, this pause allows our healthcare system to be better prepared and recognizing this possible side effect when it occurs, even if it's rare, and treating it correctly. I think, um, you know, uh, we got another question that just uh, really asked, I think they're asking for a little bit more detail, Dr. Shaw, on, on trying to understand, we've talked about the monitoring system, but uh, somebody has noted that they're not really sure what the monitoring system means. Um, how, do, how do we as a country monitor uh, for serious side effects, as you said, that may not happen until millions and millions of people are actually using a drug, or in this case, the vaccine. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and there's multiple systems in place. So, for the COVID-19 vaccines, there's the same backbone national system that's used for all vaccines, which is called VAERS. Every healthcare provider and even the public have access to VAERS, but healthcare providers specifically, all of them have been trained to use it trained to report, they know what to look for. And so any patient who has a side effect after the vaccine, especially a serious side effect, we go online, we enter in a report, and then CDC, which manages VAERS, calls the patient, gathers details, and those reports are also sent to local health departments for further help, further follow-up, and further information gathering. That's a system that's happening every day. I look at VAERS reports every day that are reported from LA County. So far, we haven't seen any patterns locally here in our county. But again, it's good that this is done nationally so that if even if there's one case in Alaska and one case in DC, somebody might be able to make the connection. Um, that, is, that, is, that is the routine system. In addition, because these are new vaccines and they're being used at such a large scale, there are additional methods in place. These additional methods include a network of hospitals that are doing extra monitoring on patients to look for things that uh, might have to be looked at proactively. And it includes for the first time patient-based reports with the VSAFE program. So when you get vaccinated, you should be provided a flyer of how to enroll. The CDC sends text messages asking if how you're doing after vaccination and if there's anything you'd like to report. If there is anything of concern, they call you and gather all the details. So between these three systems, we are getting tons and tons and tons of data on the vaccine looking for any possible rare effect. Yeah, for those of you who have been vaccinated at any one of the county managed sites, you know we do give you a flyer and on it there are what we call some QR codes. And one of them is the code that you can click on so that you could be part of this uh, vaccine safety program that CDC has asked everybody 
um, who's getting vaccinated to participate in. So, uh, you know, thanks for that reminder, uh, Dr. Shaw. Um, I, I wonder, uh, Dr. Simon or Dr. Davis, uh, we also have a couple of questions. I, there are some people who really uh, are anxious to be able to get Johnson & Johnson again, and they're wondering what does it take for the FDA to reapprove the Janssen vaccine or Johnson & Johnson vaccine so that it can be available again and administered again in our county? So I don't know, Dr. Davis or Dr. Simon, if either one of you want to jump in. Dr. Davis, you want to? Or I'm happy to, to start. Um, it's important to note that the uh, the FDA has not removed the approval. Uh, this is a pause. It's what is described as a signal uh, that indicates there may be a problem, and uh, and consequently, uh, you know, there's a very significant and intensive, you know, investigation underway, but. Given the urgency of this pandemic and the the need to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible, our sense is that the advisory committees for both the CDC and the FDA are going to move pretty quickly here. There uh, is, I think, a lot of um, urgency to get get uh, to complete this investigation as quickly as possible. We're hoping for an update late next week uh, that will give us a better sense of what this pause you know, we will evolve into anywhere from being able to immediately resume um, use of the vaccine to uh, further, um, you know, delay and, and or determining that there may be certain groups that should not use this vaccine, but another vaccine. So there are a number of possibilities, but but I think, again, it's, it's not a, a removal of the approval process. It's really uh, a pause. I can add to that. I think, you know, as, as the initial data, you know, pointed to the time frame between six uh, days and uh, thir six and 13 days, uh, I would suspect that uh, the group will start to look back, um, you know, over the last two weeks uh, for anyone that had been vaccinated with uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, many providers, um, as we put out a health alert, you know, we said, look, for all, you know, do contact your, your patients. Uh, make them aware of what these uh, this this initial uh, these initial six women uh, experience, and let people know to contact you or to contact VSafe if they start to experience these symptoms, so that they are reported. Uh, but it's looking back over the last couple of weeks uh, for those who have recently gotten the Johnson Johnson vaccine, or especially in the last six to thirteen days, looking to see if there have been any additional reports uh, on any similar uh, experiences. Uh, and those people as well. Uh, so that's really what the discussion was. And for anyone who's interested, you can always look up to see when the next ACIP meeting is related to this uh, and listen online live as they have these discussions. But those were some of the things that they talked about in terms of looking at additional data to see whether or not the continued pause is warranted. I think you're muted, Dr. Freer. No, I shouldn't be. Can you hear me now? We can now. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, I, there's some, there's, there's some uh, again, very thoughtful questions noting that since the J&J &J vaccine works very similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine, 
will the will this pause in the J and J vaccine affect the FDA's approval here on for AstraZeneca? So I don't know, Dr. Shaw, if you want to chime in on that. It's a great question. Uh, right now, the AstraZeneca vaccine has not applied for approval within the U.S. When it eventually does, knowing the risk of CVST with AstraZeneca from Europe, uh, the FDA will have several options. Uh, they may conclude that at this time, uh, there is not a need for an additional vaccine in the U.S. based on current production level. Uh, they may approve the vaccine, but limit its use to certain age groups, as many countries in Europe have done. Yeah, that that that's that's a great <laughs> that's a great answer. I mean, it is again, you know, um, uh, I think the good the good side of all of this information is I think it helps all of us recognize how many people are looking all across the world at vaccine safety. Um, and, you know, that should give all of us some reassurance that, you know, we have so many researchers and scientists and clinicians that have been paying attention and tracking vaccines, not just our COVID-19 vaccines, but over really uh, many, many decades now. So there's a lot of experience on, on what needs to happen before vaccines get approved and then after they get approved, as, as, uh, as our doctors have described. Uh, how closely they're they're monitored for very long periods of time. Um, I think there's a, there's a, a question here uh, that I think might be helpful uh, for maybe perhaps um, Dr. Davis, if you can uh, talk to people about uh, their concerns that if folks were vaccinated at a community event, and we want to thank all of our mobile teams who have been out there vaccinating at those community events, and they don't have insurance, and they don't have a primary care doctor uh, that they know or that they're in contact with, uh, where should they go to get some medical advice because they did receive the J&J &J vaccine and now they have concerns? So the, as mentioned uh, earlier, you know, if you do not have a provider, let's say that you have symptoms, let's just start there. Let's say that you have symptoms that you question uh, you know, is this related to uh, something related to the vaccine or should I be worried? Um, you know, so the first thing is, one, if you don't have a medical provider, um, there often are urgent care providers who will take people who they haven't seen before. Um, if your symptoms are serious enough and worrisome enough, you can always go to the emergency room. But you can also call 211, uh, a general number here in L.A. County, and ask them, you know, for a provider who is near you that, you know, can see you whether you have insurance or not. And they can provide you with the names and locations and phone numbers uh, for providers who are near you, who you can be seen, who can see you and evaluate you uh, on primary, for primary care issues or to answer general questions that you might have. So I would say start with 211 if you don't know where else to look. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, we, we have talked in the past about the importance of people uh, taking the opportunity now to find a prime, primary care provider. Uh, don't wait till you actually have symptoms or, or think you may be ill. And again, you know, 211 is, is a great resource. There's a very extensive network of community clinics uh, across the county that can, can provide these sorts of services. Yeah, I was also gonna encourage folks, uh, we do have a lot of community clinics the Department of Health Services, which is a county department, also offers free care at many different sites throughout um, the county. 
And, you know, these sites are, you know, there's, there's dozens and dozens of them all across the county, and they'd be happy uh, to talk with you. Uh, whether you're their patient now or you're going to become their patient later, um, if you don't have a place to go, you know, look at, look, try to find a community clinic that's near you uh, and feel free to go there uh, to ask your questions. Uh, the other, the other place that, that people can get really good answers to questions, particularly around the COVID-19 vaccines, are all of our pharmacies that are vaccinating. So there's like well over 250 pharmacies in LA County that are providing vaccines. There really is, you know, almost in every significantly sized community, there is probably a pharmacy there where the pharmacist has a lot of good information about vaccine safety. And so if you if you're not connected to a health clinic, uh, but you do have a pharmacy in your neighborhood that's providing uh, vaccinations, uh, they're also people always happy to help, always happy uh, to answer your questions. Uh, I also wanna let people know that, uh, you know, regardless of the language you speak, we have a lot of good information up on our website uh, here at the Department of Public Health. Um, and, you know, you can also go to LA County uh, vaccinatelacounty.com, vacunate condado de Los Angeles, I think, or, yeah, I think that's it. No, vacunate los angeles.com. Uh, those are also sites where you can go and get information, sites where you can get vaccinated, but also information about vaccine safety um, and get connected to providers. So I'm going to urge people to use some of the sites that are up and running uh, to be able to get your your information, uh, and uh, I don't know if we have this capacity to to really post at the end of of our time together tonight some of those resources, so people will have that on the screen and they'll be able to see some of the places they can go to get more information. I know we're we're rapidly uh, running out of time here, um, and but I think we we can answer. Perhaps uh, one last question um, that folks uh, have been asking uh, a lot, and uh, you know, we we again ap appreciate um, that that people still uh, remain concerned about understanding that what the difference might be between the three vaccines. So we got a whole bunch of questions uh, that really were, you know, can you tell me which vaccine is better or more effective? if I'm at, the, at this age group or that age group, or I'm an older person or a younger person. So I just wonder uh, if maybe, you know, starting with Dr. Shaw, we could just get folks, uh, you know, sort of wise counsel on how do you choose? Like right now we're on a pause for, for Johnson & Johnson, but hopefully we're able to resume administering that vaccine shortly. Uh, but if you, if you have the option, or you want to be able to make a choice on this, how would you decide which one would be the right vaccine for you? So Dr. Shaw, I'll start with you. A great question and a simple answer. Uh, unless you're 16 or 17, in which case you can only receive Pfizer, if you're more than 18, if you're 18 years old or, or older, the best vaccine is the one you can get into your arm the quickest. And it's really as simple as that. I just, I just want to put things and remind everyone a little bit of perspective. We've had over 23,000 people die of COVID-19 here in LA County. Um, even people who have survived with mild COVID, many of them continue to report long-term symptoms. 
from their COVID-19. Uh, many of you live with family members who would be at high risk, even if you yourself are not at high risk of severe disease. And across the nation, we have over half a million deaths. So this, this virus is not uh, over yet. Uh, we are still in the pandemic. We still have variants. Everybody needs to be protected as quickly as possible. So the best vaccine is the one you can receive the soonest. Um, beyond that, uh, I do want to just a, a quick note of thanks to all of our vaccinating providers. Uh, we, we really, really appreciate all the hard work they do, the evenings, the weekends, the special events, the outreach. Uh, and again, in a really fast-paced changing environment, we have more than 700 vaccination sites here in LA County. Uh, it, it, we're really, really proud of our network and where, where it's lacking, we're still continuously trying to build up. So please find the nearest site, find the fastest vaccine appointment you can get and get vaccinated today. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sean. Maybe uh, we can just go ahead and move to Dr. Simon and then we'll go to Dr. Davis, uh, you know, for sort of comments on this, but also any last thoughts uh, you'd like to share with our listeners and viewers. So I think that closing by Dr. Shaw was outstanding. Um, I couldn't say it any better. Uh, I will speak just again from personal experience when I'm asked by family and friends, I uh, say exactly what Dr. Shaw just said. And as an epidemiologist, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked by the numbers. I think back a year ago, we never would have imagined losing more than 23,000 people in Los Angeles County and over a half a million people across the country. And, just to put it in perspective, we, we have about 60,000 deaths each year from all causes combined before COVID. And now we have a single cause of death that accounts for more than a third. Um, so um, the, the importance of, of being vaccinated can't be overstated. Um, I do wanna thank everybody for joining tonight. Obviously you're here because you're concerned and interested and, and so, uh, we hope the information tonight has been helpful, but we're always available uh, to, to answer questions and just want to wish you all well. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Simon. Uh, Dr. Davis? Well, well, first I want to answer a question because you said QR code and I just remember being an observation how many times I had to explain how to use a QR code. So for those of you who don't know how to use a QR code, open up the camera on your phone uh, put it on that 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 box signal, and then a link will pop up, and click that link, uh, and it'll take you to the information there. I, I had to I had to at least answer that. Um, but uh, in general, uh, you know, I, I think uh, as Dr. Simon said, Dr. Shaw's answer was was spot on. Uh, I know people who have gotten all three vaccines, uh, and they've all differently had uh, side effects or no side effects at all. Uh, the vaccines are working. Uh, we want more people to get vaccinated, but we recognize that it's a very personal decision. And we hope that we have enough information up. And if we have additional questions that we haven't answered, that we can provide that information to you in some form or fashion uh, so that you can make an informed decision uh, about whether or not you get vaccinated. But we encourage everyone to get vaccinated. Uh, these have been very effective uh, and they'll get us to the other side of this pandemic. So thank you very much. Yeah, no, I, I too want to just extend my thanks and appreciation to everyone who was able to join us tonight. Uh, we do, you know, try to host monthly town halls um, so that there is an opportunity uh, for us to hear from you and try to answer your questions. 
I want to thank uh, our media team here that has put up information about where you can go to get additional support uh, and information about vaccines for LA County. Um, so I, I do want to, you know, again, urge folks, you know, please, if you have questions, you need answers, you know, find people that, that you trust in your communities and talk with them about how, uh, what kind of information you need to make you feel comfortable uh, going ahead and, and getting that vaccine. I think Dr. Davis said it best. Uh, our job here at the health department is to make sure you have really good information uh, so that you can make the decision that's right for you. Uh, but we do know that uh, vaccines are one of the most powerful tools we have right now uh, for protecting ourselves and each other. Um, and we're hoping that uh, the information you got tonight uh, was, was really helpful. I wanna also you know, say muchas um, gracias a todos that were able to to join us tonight. Um, I wanna thank all of our translators and our media team uh, for helping to make this possible. But mostly we thank with deep appreciation for everything all of you are doing uh, to keep each other safe. And with that, uh, good night. And we look forward to hearing from you and talking with you again uh, within a few weeks. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.